0: So why don't I pray, and then we'll get into our text for today, that really long text uh, from Proverbs chapter 9. We're going to look at a lot more, but um, rather than you flip around, we just read the one verse. So let me pray. Um, our Father, we, we do give you thanks um, for your goodness to us. Lord, thank you for keeping the lamp burning. Um, Lord, thank you for turning our darkness into light. And Lord, as we continue to think about this topic of wisdom, Lord, I pray that you give us light and insight into uh, what it is to know you, to fear you. Uh, Lord, would you give us wisdom, just like uh, your word says, if we feel like we lack it, we can ask you. And so, Lord, all through this series, we're asking you. Please, Lord, would you give us wisdom, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this last week, I started watching the Marvel show, Lokis. Anybody watched this show? Uh, I don't think I'm ruining it for you by telling you uh, about it, but the premise of the show pretty much uh, it has to do with there being another, uh, let's call it another dimension, another world, that uh, governs the one that we live in. I'm not really, I really—I don't think I'm ruining it for you. You find that out pretty early in episode one. So in that show, it, it's basically about this this other dimension that is outside of time that governs time, the one that we live in. And people from that dimension are able to transcend into our dimension, or at least the dimension of the Marvel characters. I don't know if we live in the same universe as them or not. but. Um, But their goal as they come, as they transcend into the normal world, is to come and fix it. Come and make it better. Uh, Fix things that are broken. And that got me thinking, there's been a lot of shows like that recently, like Stranger Things is like that. There's these two dimensions, and and you can sort of transcend in between them. Or Westworld, which I think I've only seen one episode of, but um, it's the same thing. Like People are transcending from one world into another, and people outside that world that they're living in are controlling and, and handling everything that's happening in there. And so in other words, what these shows are imagining is what if there was another world, another dimension, so to speak, outside of the one that we know. And the people in that other world actually govern what happens in this one. Okay, that's the sort of premise of all of these shows. And here's what's really fun about that. That way of viewing creation or the universe or reality, whatever you want to call it, is actually in large part a very Christian and biblical worldview. Well, just stick with me here. Very subtly, whether we realize it or not, the creators of those shows, um, you know, or the creators of the shows realize it. Um, when we watch those shows, we're being shown something of a Christian and biblical view of how the universe works. Because what you come across in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is very consistent in this. What you come across, Uh, is the idea that there is another reality, another dimension, if you will, that governs the one that you and I inhabit. And there is a personal being in that uh, that world who has all authority over this one. And not only that, but that being himself transcends, he comes into our reality. And that's a biblical worldview. And that's not too different than Loki stepping through little magic doors from one dimension into another to try and set things right. Right? Now, the shows that we're watching on Netflix and Disney and HBO, they usually don't go all the way here to say that there's a personal God who governs our reality, who has all authority over it. They they almost never go that far. But here's the question. Why do we like those shows so much? Why are they so popular? Why are some of the most popular shows streaming today about individuals or beings from another world transcending into our world? Why are we making these things? Why is it such a popular idea? Well, if you were here last week, uh, you'll know that we're in week two of a four-week series on on wisdom. What is it? How do we get it? How do we live in, in light of it? And what we saw last week was that wisdom, it's not just information. It's not just knowing the right thing. Wisdom is having the perseverance to actually do the right thing over and over and over again, even and especially when it's hard. That's what wisdom is. Doing the right thing over and over again, even when it's hard. And last week, we specifically talked about the wisdom of today. Uh, which was all about planting seeds today of things like goodness and kindness and self-control and gentleness and, and righteousness, so that tomorrow or a year from now, that's what you're reaping, that's what you're harvesting in your life. Now, back to our friend Loki and his ability to transcend, to sort of jump between worlds. Today, we're looking at the wisdom of fear. And you saw it in that passage, it talked about the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, it actually has something to do with this idea of transcendence between worlds, transcending between heaven and earth. And here's what I mean by that. Our Bible reading today, Proverbs 9.10, I'll read it again. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now what that's saying is every person's wisdom, that is their way of understanding the world and living in it, begins with their view, their understanding of God. That your whole, the whole way that you live and orient your life, all of that actually begins with your understanding of who God is. Uh, For example, and I'm borrowing this illustration, what is a dog other than, you know, a cute little animal that gives you uh, unconditional love and smells? What is a dog? Well, it depends. It depends what a dog is. Uh, Are we in a godless universe so that every living thing is just the product of survival of the fittest? Or is God the impersonal sort of ethereal spirit so that everything in the universe is maybe just like an illusion? Or are we created by God who ordered the universe and put us here to care for his creation? Each view of reality, to be consistent with that view, would need to look at a dog and potentially treat a dog differently. And what Proverbs 9.10 is saying is to have real wisdom, to have real understanding about the world and how to live in it, it begins with how we view God. Now, we, we... I've been secretly doing some philosophy already with you, and we're going to do a little bit more. Um, but this philosophy comes with drawings. So I know you guys love my drawings, and I'm waiting for those of you that are connected to like Disney and Nickelodeon to tell them about how good my drawings are. So they will call me and hire me to you know, illustrate a cartoon. Um, but here the drawings um, come along with this philosophy. So Charles Taylor was a, a Canadian philosopher, and he spent the better part of his career. Uh, trying to understand this cultural shift from religious to secular. How did we go in the Western world from this very religious thing where God is at the center of everything to this secular worldview that we have? And his observation is that, broadly speaking, Western thinkers see the world and our place in it in one of three ways. And each of these uh, three ways of understanding the world, in other words, our wisdom, it actually has to do with our view of God. So first drawing, this is a generic city. Uh, there's palm trees, so you could maybe call it Los Angeles, I don't know. Uh, there's our generic city, but let's look at that city in the three ways that Taylor describes. And so first we'll look at it as, you know, we'll call it the most secular way to view the world. It's sort of like this, so go to the next one. Um, and what you have there is, you know, where the blue is and, and you know, that's the sky and the clouds and everything. And that, that's the world that we inhabit. That's everything in there is what you can see, what you can taste, what you can touch, what you can feel, what you can hear this worldview basically says outside of that is nothing. And that's what the black is about. There's nothing. So everything is, he calls, Taylor calls it the imminent frame. Whatever's imminent, whatever you can touch, see, taste, feel, that's, that's one way of viewing the world. In other words, in that worldview, there's nothing transcendent, nothing coming from above, nothing coming from outside. Loki's not coming in. Okay, that's, that's that worldview. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum. There is, this would be the most religious way to view the world. Um, this would be like we were talking about last week, you know, the passing era. This is how the passing era would view the world. And so they would say that there's that world that we live in, the things that you can see, taste, touch, feel. But then outside of that world, connected to that world, there is a God who is on a throne. There is a God who created everything. There is a God who orders everything. And not only that, notice the dotted line in there between where that God's reality is and where our reality is that it's actually, he can go through that. And we can pass through it. There's transcendence. So this is the sort of most religious way to look at it. But then there's a third way to look at it. And actually, the more I reflect on it, the more I think this is how Angelinos view the world. Not so much like that first one, but but maybe a little bit more like this. And many people have chosen this because... They either, on one hand, can't can't bring themselves to view God as their authority entirely, but also, on the other hand, they can't conceive of a world where they're utterly alone. And so this is a sort of transcendent world, but whatever is there is impersonal. And so that's what the purple clouds are. It's this sort of impersonal, you know, ethereal being that maybe governs things but is not personal. And so what this view allows, and actually the, the first one allows someone to be ultimately free to live how they want ultimately free to live how they want without consequences. Um, And each of these three ways of viewing the world, and of course this is oversimplified, it leads to a different kind of wisdom. It leads to a different way of understanding reality and living within that reality. So there you go. Philosophy lesson over. Thank you for sticking with me through that. I hope the drawings helped you. We're going to come back to it, but let's go back to the question, why do we keep making these shows about transcendence? Why are they so popular? And I think it's this. I think it's because since about the 1960s, our culture, what what they've been doing, what we've been doing, is doing our very best to try to erase God, to try to cancel him. And so that's to live in either the first option, only, only imminence, there's nothing outside, or the third option, there's transcendence but no personal God. And the reason I think we're making and watching these shows about transcendence is because deep down, deeply there somewhere in our hearts, we miss God we miss him. We've canceled him. We've sent him away, but deep down we miss him. And so what do we do? We keep expressing ourselves. Our culture keeps expressing itself with this desire, this longing for something transcendent to break into our world and fix it. And so making and watching shows it betrays that we're longing for the transcendent. And what we're going to see in today's passages, we'll look at more than just that one verse, is that biblical wisdom actually injects the active transcendence of God back into our lives. And when that happens, we're filled, according to Proverbs 19.23, we're filled with life and contentment, and we're protected by this God. And so let's look at the wisdom of fear, the fear of the Lord, and let's see if we can't begin by doing that, to be filled with this life and contentment and be protected. And so three points today. The fear of God, what is it? Secondly, the fear of God fulfills and protects you, and thirdly, the fear of God lifts you up. Now, once again, our main reading... It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And that phrase, fear of the Lord, it shows up all over the Bible, uh, perhaps most often in the wisdom literature, in books like Proverbs and in the Psalms. And of course, there's a, there's a kind of fear that leads to dread, you know, the fear of punishment, the fear of harm. You know, this, is the, this, is the, this fear is terror. That, that's one kind of fear, and the Bible does talk about that, but there's another kind of fear. That is actually this idea of standing in awe of something. It's actually something that leads to respect, even to worship the thing that you're in awe of. And so this kind of fear is is like awe. It's wonder. And that's the kind of fear that's being talked about here in this passage. Um, In describing the fear of the Lord in Proverbs 9, one of my friends used to always explain it like, like it's a train. And if you've ever spent any time traveling around somewhere like Europe, you know, where trains are like the main way of getting around, uh, maybe you've done this in Japan too, I don't know, but, but if you've ever traveled, you've probably taken a train or two, and, and you know how this works. You'll be standing on the platform, and there's usually some kind of steward there with a reflective vest and a whistle and a little sign, looks like this guy, um, and they'll be standing there, and if, if you got even close to this like bright yellow line on the platform between, you know, like right at the edge of the platform where the train comes in, there's like a painted yellow line, And if you even, like your toe just got within an inch of it, that steward is blowing their whistle and waving their sign and yelling something at you. Even if you're in a different country, you don't know the language, you can work out that they're saying, get back, this isn't safe, back off. And I remember the first few times I took a train in Europe thinking, okay, chill out, man. What's the big deal? The train's going to come and slow down. It's going to come to a stop. And I'll have plenty of time to get out of the way if I need to. It's fine and then moments later having the wind taken out of me by a train that flew through the station at 75 miles an hour. And you realize the reason the platform steward is there is, is because not every train stops at the station. And some of them barely even slow down, and there's nothing in between you and the train but a little bit of yellow paint and a steward with a whistle. And if you've ever experienced that, then I think you've experienced some of what the Bible is getting at when it talks about the fear of the Lord. Because in that moment when the train comes blasting through the station at 75 miles per hour, you feel the wind being pushed down the track in front of the train. You feel that coming before you even see the train. And your ears begin to ring with this immense sound of the engine and the screaming of steel wheels rolling along steel track. And then just think of the mass of the train, the weight of it, and compare that with the, the speed of the train. And your only response in that moment can be of awe and respect. You have to stand back, and you have to give it respect. Now, that's one way of looking at this, but that's actually, a train's not a personal thing, except for Thomas. He's a personal train. A train is an impersonal thing, and so that's only half of this. Um, So let me give you another picture. C.S. Lewis, and his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the main characters, the Pevensey children, they're transported. They actually get this to actually transcend from our world into another world called Narnia. And in that world, there are talking animals. And they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who take them uh, in and give them a little shelter and some guidance. And in this story, for lack of a better term, the story, it's an allegory, uh, there's a character called Aslan. And Aslan is the god who created this world called Narnia. You learn, actually, that he spoke it, he sang it into being, actually. And as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling the children about him, here's what they say. They say, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In other words, now that's getting at the personal side of it. So we've seen the train that it's this impersonal, it's this force, we give it awe. But then in this story, you see the personal side of it. Of course a lion isn't safe. Of course a lion isn't tame. Of course you give respect to the lion, but this one is good. And so the fear of the Lord, it isn't about terror, it's about respect, it's about awe. And it's that fear, that awe, that the Bible says over and over and over again is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 15.33, wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord. Psalm 111, verse 10, it's the exact same as our reading today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then this might be my favorite, Job 28.28, the fear of the Lord... That is wisdom. Now, all of these have to do with the starting point of where wisdom comes from. Now, what that's saying is if if you want any chance, any chance at all of having wisdom, it begins with respect. It begins with awe of God. Put that another way. The fear of the Lord has to do with the place of God in your life. Is he the ultimate? Is he the authority in your life? Is God the one whom you give the most awe, the most respect? Just think about our our drawings again. Is he the one who's on the throne of your life? Because if he's not, then, then here's what these texts are saying. You are not on the path towards wisdom. If God is not in the ultimate place in your life, what these texts are saying is you're not on the path towards wisdom. Look with at, look at me at Proverbs chapter 2, and in verse 2, he says uh, to the reader, Turn, turning your ear to wisdom, and then verse 4, this will be on the screen, if you look for it, look for wisdom as for silver, and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And so what, what that's saying is, it's saying, search for wisdom like people search for gold. Search for it like people search for hidden treasure, but but there's no use searching for gold or treasure in a place where it's never been buried. What the writer says is that the Lord is the one who gives wisdom. Wisdom comes from his mouth, and so if you want to find wisdom, look to the source, look to the place where wisdom comes from. And this is where our little philosophy lesson comes in. You can put them back up again. Because if your view of the world is either that imminent frame or the transcendence but impersonal, then what these texts are saying is you've actually cut yourself off from wisdom. If your view is that there's nothing transcendent, that there's no God above all, then what you're saying is there's no wisdom at all because there's no source of wisdom. God is the source of wisdom. And if you've canceled him or if you've erased him, no personal God who speaks, no personal God who thinks, no personal God who has understanding then you will not get wisdom. Now, by the way, I understand the appeal of either of those two views. You know, if there's no transcendent and personal God, then there's no one I'm really accountable to. And so I get this sense of freedom from authority. I can do whatever it is that I want to do. But here's the problem. Along with that freedom comes, according to, again, our philosopher friend Charles Taylor, this sense that we're missing something, that we've been cut off from something. Like He describes it like we're living behind a screen And the reason, Taylor says, that we feel that way is because even though we've given up on a transcendent reality, we haven't given up transcendent feelings and experiences. We're constantly seeking them. And so we struggle to find true significance and meaning in life, never satisfied. Because without significance coming from a transcendent place outside of ourselves, then we're left feeling thin and fragile. Once again, Taylor, he puts it this way. He says, some people sense a terrible flatness in the everyday. And this experience has been identified particularly with commercial, industrial, or consumer society. There is an emptiness to the repeated, accelerating cycle of desire and fulfillment within consumer culture. A terrible sense of flatness in the everyday. You feel that? In other words, we find that our lives of consuming either as many experiences as possible or consuming and amassing as many top-quality possessions as we can, like houses and cars and clothes and devices, etc., that consuming those things will always fall short of giving us the sense of significance and meaning in our life that we're truly longing for. And along with that, Along with that, get this, without a transcendent and personal God, when we come to the crucial moments in life, think of birth, think of marriage, think of death. Even if we don't believe in a transcendent God, we still reach for something transcendent. There's still something that we're grasping for. Because many people, even if they have no connection or feel no affinity towards religion, they still end up going through the ritual of the church for these crucial moments in their life. These these rites of passage, you know, think of christenings. Think of weddings. Think of funerals. And all of these things, even people who have canceled God, they actually reach for something transcendent in that. And what I think that's showing us is that even for the person whose worldview is, is just the imminent, there's still deep down a longing for the transcendent, for the thing that we've canceled. And what the wisdom of the fear of God shows us is that the thing, in other words, the transcendence that you're looking for, if that's you, what you're longing for is for God himself to come into your life. This is the reason why the biblical authors constantly are saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is the beginning of knowledge. Now, look what happens when you begin to fear the Lord. So to fear the Lord, is to place him in that position of authority in your life, to take his truth as expressed in the Bible as your truth. And then look what happens when you do that. Proverbs 19.23, and this is also point two, point two, the fear of God fulfills and protects you. But what you find out is that when God comes into a person's life, satisfaction, fulfillment, and protection, they come with him. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord, there's that phrase again, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content untouched by trouble. Now here's what that's saying. That those who fear God, who place God in the position of awe, the position of respect, of ultimate authority in their lives, here's what that's saying. They don't find their life any less satisfying. They actually find life more satisfying, more life-giving. Because look at how often the biblical writers associate the fear of God, a person's respect for, the authority of God, look how often they associate that with satisfaction with fulfillment in life. Here's just a few examples. Uh, Psalm 31, verse 19. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you. Abundance and fear together. Psalm 34, verse 9. For the Lord, fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Psalm 112 verse 1, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Isaiah 33 verses 5 to 6, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. There's that picture of him transcendent above. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. You see how often the fear of the Lord is associated with life, with fulfillment, with satisfaction. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who he lived in the 17th century, he was this brilliant mathematician and a physicist and an inventor and a philosopher. Uh, Eventually, he became a theologian, and he was, he actually, by the way, he's the guy who, um, with another guy, invented the mechanical calculator in 1642. That's when the calculator was invented. Um, I don't think it was a TI-80 or whatever they have now, but it was something like that. And perhaps his most well-known philosophical argument is known as Pascal's Wager. Um, Sorry, we're doing a lot of philosophy today. We don't normally do that. It's just today's, I felt very philosophical this week. And Pascal's wager goes like this. He argues that a rational person, a rational person, a thinking person, should live as though God exists and seek to believe in God. Because, here's his argument, if God doesn't exist, that person will only have finite loss. So, throughout their life, the loss of some pleasures, of some luxuries, of some freedoms, etc. Whereas if God does exist then a person, and they believe in him, a person stands to receive infinite gains, eternity in heaven, and at the same time avoid infinite losses and eternity in hell. Now, what's his point with that? It's simply this, that if he got to the end of his life and there turned out to be no God, then what he's saying is he lost very little. Just some momentary fleeting pleasures, almost nothing. But on the other hand, what he gained was a life of fulfillment and purpose, a way to make sense out of the joys of life and make sense out of the sorrows of life. And if at the end of his life it turned out to be true, it turned out that God is real, that he really uh, did reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ, well, that's even better because what he gets is eternal joy. So in other words, for the brilliant mathematician, physicist, philosopher, Placing his trust in Jesus Christ for salvation was a win-win. Even if God isn't real, what he was wagering is that fearing God, having God on the throne of his life, means that he still, his life was still a life lived with fulfillment and purpose. Now, not only that, but back to Proverbs 19.23. The second half of it says that the fear, first half, fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. And so here we see, actually, that the fear of the Lord protects you. That's what it means when it says one rests content. The literal translation of the word rest says that a person who fears the Lord spends the night content. Isn't that a nice picture? Meaning God is, he's like a haven in the storm. A few months ago, I went with a, a group of other pastors to go do a very outdoorsy thing in rural Montana. What am I saying? All Montana is rural. Anyway, the first night we were all staying in these uh, glamping tents, thankfully it wasn't a a real tent, but still, we were staying in these glamping tents and they were basically like old army tents um, set up on wood decking, and so the only thing protecting you from the elements was the metal frame and canvas walls and a canvas roof. And um, the first night that we were there, uh, we're staying in this tent and there was a massive storm. Uh, There were sustained winds of up to 70 miles per hour, so that's like hurricane force winds. And all night long, the, the, the walls and the roof of the tent just flapping constantly in the wind, just, just constantly flapping. And I can tell you, I barely slept. Uh, not so much because of the noise, I actually had earplugs with me, um, but because of fear. My fear was that the tent would, would blow away, or worse, like collapse on top of us and suffocate us. or or fear that some sort of large heavy objects, like a, I don't know, a Dodge Ram pickup truck would be picked up by the wind and blown into the tent, crushing all of us inside. But the second night, we moved to another location, and in that location we stayed in a lodge, an actual building with real walls and a real roof attached to a real foundation that went deep into the ground. And I slept very well the rest of the time, why? because of the shelter. It was a secure shelter. It was like a fortress compared to the tent. And what this proverb is saying is that those who fear the Lord, the Lord is like that shelter, like that fortress. Proverbs 14.26 says, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. And notice, by the way, these texts, they don't say that fearing God means you won't have storms. They don't say that. It says that the trouble that will inevitably come will not overthrow your contentment. You will be able to rest secure. You'll be able to sleep through the night in spite of your trouble. And so here's what I want you to see. To put your trust in a transcendent personal God, to be one who holds this this worldview is to be one who is not only given life of fulfillment and satisfaction, but is one who is protected. But in contrast, if you hold either of these other two ways of viewing the world, then your world at best is like the tent flapping in the wind, unassured of your safety, frequently unsatisfied, unfulfilled, in other words, not able to spend the night. Now I hope what you're beginning to see is that the the wisdom of the fear of the Lord brings life. Fulfillment, contentment, it, it, it gives you protection. And in a few minutes, very briefly, I'll show us how to grow in that fear, but first it does one more thing, and this is point three. The fear of the Lord, the fear of God lifts you up. And so in the Bible, when people meet God face-to-face, we actually, this was even in our liturgy today, when they meet God face-to-face, they're always falling on the ground. You know, when they see God, that that awe, that respect takes over, and their only response is to fall trembling before God. It happened with Moses. Remember Moses? He actually asked God if he could see him, but God said, no, 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 my presence is too wonderful for you, too glorious, too holy. If you see me, you'll die. It happened with Joshua. Remember the night before the battle of Jericho? Joshua, remember he meets the commander of the army of the Lord. It's actually, it was God incarnate. And so Joshua, when he met him, he falls face to the ground, trembling. It happened with Isaiah. Isaiah was taken up to the throne room of heaven. When he sees God in all of his glory, he calls down judgment upon himself. It happened with the Apostle Paul. He's he's traveling on the road to Damascus. He's not yet a Christian. He's on his way to go and persecute some Christians. And Jesus, in his glorified state, interrupts his travel. And Paul falls immediately to the ground, and he's blinded. It happened with the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He's standing there and, and looking out at some vista, and he hears a voice, and he turns around, and it's the glorified Jesus standing before him. And it, the text says in Revelation 1 that he immediately fell to the ground. And in each of these instances, what you're seeing is the fear of the Lord utter respect for his glory, his weightiness, his righteousness, his authority. And so on the one hand, the fear of the Lord, it always causes us to see God rightly, to see him as holy, as righteous, as glorious. And so therefore, it causes us to, on the other hand, humble ourselves before him. It causes us to see ourselves rightly as unholy, unrighteous, inglorious compared to God himself. But here's what's amazing about the fear of the Lord. When we fear God in this way, When we see him rightly, when we see ourselves rightly, his holiness, our unholiness, when we see that, God always does something to raise us back up. Remember Moses trembling in the cleft uh, cleft of the rock as the glory of the Lord passed before him. And what does God do? He places his hand over Moses' face to protect him. And then after he passes by, he, he proclaimed his name. He said, now go lead my people. Remember Joshua trembling on the ground before the commander of the army of the Lord, God incarnate, and God tells him to take off his sandals because the place he's standing on is holy ground, but then he gives him a battle plan. In other words, he lifts him back up and he sends him out with a plan. Isaiah, what did God do with Isaiah? He sends an angel with a burning coal and he heals his lips, the thing he confessed was sinful, and then he sends him out to proclaim the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, remember blinded, lying on the side of the road, Days later, God sends a man to pray for him, and when he does, immediately the scales fall from his eyes. He's unblinded, and the text says, literally, he got up and was baptized. He was raised up and sent out as an apostle. And finally, John, on the island of Patmos, lying on the ground before the risen and glorified Jesus Christ, in Revelation 1.17, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. And then it says that Jesus commissioned him to see and to write down a vision and to share that with the churches. In other words, he, he put his hand down, he raised them up, and then he sent him out. In each instance, the fear of the Lord caused the person first to see God in his utter glory and his holiness, which meant also then to humble themselves before the Lord, to see themselves rightly. And then God in his love and faithfulness lifted them up and his mercy lifted them up and sent them out. And this is the reason why our pattern for worship is always up, down, up, out. Up, down, up, and out. Is, it's actually a way of, of living out and infusing wisdom into our lives week after week after week. And I hope day after day after day as you, as you use that pattern in your own prayers and worship and Bible reading. And now I hope what you're seeing is that the wisdom of fear, it's actually the pattern of the Christian gospel. Because Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the glorious, righteous son of God, do you know what it says about him? He came down. He transcended. The righteous son of God came down. He transcended from heaven to earth and he died. Just think about that with our drawings. What the Bible communicates about this God, this personal and transcendent God, what, it, what he uses his power to do is not to be self-exalting, but to be self-sacrificing. He transcends. He descends all the way to an excruciating death in order that you and I could be forgiven of all of our unrighteousness, all the things we're immediately aware of if we're in his presence. But then God the Father and God the Spirit, they raise him up from the dead and exalt him to the highest place. That's the Christian gospel. It's up, down, up, out. It's also the wisdom of fear. It's it's actually the way that you and I grow in our fear of the Lord. And so very briefly then, I promised I'd tell you this briefly, How how do we increase our fear of the Lord? How do we grow in that and therefore grow in wisdom? Well, one thing, and you can apply it in two directions. How do we grow in that? It's through worship. Worship is simply exalting God to the highest place in our lives. Now, oftentimes we do that in song, but also we do it in our words and in our actions. And so one way to worship is singing. You know, that's the most common expression of worship. It's why we sing so much as a church. It's why Christians have been singing for 2,000 years. It's why even on Apple Music, there's a category on the main page for Christian music. Because we write songs. We exalt the Lord through singing. And Singing, it's a way of aligning your heart with your mind, aligning What you believe with what you know to be true, aligning what you you know with what you feel. And so singing is one way to worship. And so when we sing together, singing loudly, singing boldly, is actually a way of you growing in the fear of the Lord and therefore becoming more wise. That singing is one way, but so is obedience. Obedience is a form of worship. To actually obey God's word in every area of your life with your tongue, with your finances, with your time, with your body, to obey what God says about all of these things is actually a form of worship. Because every time you obey God, what are you doing? What are you doing when you're obeying God? You're exalting him to the highest place. You're giving him the authority. You're saying, I'm going to do what you say. You're placing him on the throne of your life, and that is a form of worship. So Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Every person's wisdom that is their way of understanding the world and living in it actually begins with their view of God. And the way for you and I as Christians to grow in our wisdom begins with us placing God on the throne of our lives in the position of authority. In other words, to worship Him. And so the wisdom of fear is to worship God above all people and above all things. That's what it is to fear the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we exalt you. We exalt you to the highest place. Lord, we fear you. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we either try to exalt ourselves or other things, or Lord, for the ways that we have tried to cancel you. Lord, we want to be wise, and so therefore we fear you. We exalt you.